0: good morning to each of you, and again, a warm welcome to any of you who are visiting with us for the first time. Let's take God's Word and the Holy Scriptures and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Again, that is the book of Romans, chapter 10, and I invite you, I encourage you to follow along as I read verses 4 through 13. And so please hear the word of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, Say, now hear me out. These verses, especially the first half, uh, appear to be a little tricky. There's a lot going on in there that at first glance appears confusing. I want to assure you at the outset that there is nothing tricky There is nothing perplexing. There is nothing confusing in these verses. If if we begin by understanding how the Apostle Paul thinks. That is a tall order. How the Apostle Paul thinks. I say it's a tall order because his thought process, how he goes about doing things, is quite removed from how we normally do things. And so to explain this, what I want you to get, what I want you to gather at at the outset, is how the Apostle Paul views and handles the Old Testament. What do I mean? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is a quotation from the Old Testament. Look at verse 6. You guessed it. Verse 6 is a quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 7, another quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 8, there's a recurring theme here. A quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 11, a quotation from the Old Testament. Verse 13, a quotation from the Old Testament. That's as far as I read. Let's just continue on. I won't read these verses for you, but just so that you really get the feel for this. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. And so we have these 12 verses, 12 of 17 verses all share a common denominator, Again, what is it? It's the Old Testament. 12 of these 17 verses, Paul is lifting out of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is quoting them. He is citing them for us in order to convey, in order to transmit the message he wants to get across. We need to understand that at the outset. We we, we need we need to wrestle with and need to grasp Paul's thought process. You see, Paul is fully convinced of what the Lord Jesus himself affirmed back in Luke 24, verse 44. Hear this. Jesus said, these are my words. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Why does he mention the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms? This is extremely important. You look at our Old Testament, 39 books. It's divided into five sections in the Christian Bible. The Hebrew Scriptures, and this predates the days of Christ. The Hebrew Scriptures were divided into three sections. You just guessed it. The Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The the Prophets and the Psalms, also called The writings. And so the Jews held to a tripartite division of the 39 books of the Old Testament. You can go back and you can look at those lists predating the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the same books we have in our Old Testament. The order we have rearranged them, but they're the same books. The Jews, a tripartite division. And so, what was the Lord Jesus? The incarnate Son of God doing when he uttered those words in Luke 24. He was confirming the validity. He was confirming the authority and the sufficiency of the Old Testament. Moreover, on top of that, what was he confirming? Simply this. That entire Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms. They testify of me. They only have one theme. They only have one subject, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the framework in which the Apostle Paul operates. It is is foundational to his thinking. Just glance back. Go all the way back to chapter 1. He makes it clear at the outset of this book, right at the start of this epistle, he makes it clear his foundation for thinking. And look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, that's me... A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. And so the holy scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament, as we have them, they have but one grand, central theme, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. It is important for us so that we understand how Paul is thinking in this passage of Scripture. Let me divert. Let me get off here a little side road here. We're not losing our way. I'll get back, but a little side road nevertheless. Let me suggest to you that it's extremely important we be clear on this, especially in our day. In our day, why do I say that? I say that without entering too deep into this. But when it comes to interpreting Scripture within Protestant evangelicalism, there are two great schools of thought. Okay? The first thought is what we call dispensational. The second thought is what we call covenantal. If those words perplex you, forget I even said them. Just understand the point I'm going to make here. There are two ways of approaching Scripture and interpreting Scripture. So put the one over here, a big circle. We're going to call it dispensational. Put the other over here, a big circle, covenantal. These circles, in certain ways, do come close together. And at times do overlap. Because this is a generalization. There's great... Diversity within these two schools of thought. But I pray without being guilty of oversimplification, let me affirm for you that those who are within a dispensational school of thought, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, their starting point is the Old Testament. And what they do is they fit the new into the old. In a covenantal school of thought, The starting point is the New Testament, and they fit the old into the new. This text speaks to that dilemma. Paul will quote from the Old Testament 12 times, and as he quotes from these obscure passages of Scripture, which in and of themselves don't appear to have anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, what's he going to say? Christ is written all over them. This has everything to do with the Lord Jesus. His point is simply this. You cannot understand the Old Testament. You cannot appreciate the Old Testament. You cannot get at the heart of what the Old Testament is saying apart from the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that revelation which was given to the apostles contained in the New Testament. Therefore, when we approach the Old Testament, we do not do so as a starting point. We begin in the new, and we interpret the old through the new, and we understand that a lot of the thought patterns, and a lot of the forms, and a lot of the images, and a lot of those things going on in the Old Testament, they do not carry over this side of the cross unless they are understood in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of it all. We need to understand this. It clears up so much of that debate, which perplexes a number of sincere Christians. I suppose why I'm going on about this is because a couple of you have already come to me in the context of what we looked at in Romans 9 and anticipating a lot more, especially when we get to Romans 11. But the starting point, this has to be the common ground. Our basic approach to Scripture and how we are to interpret it. And let me again affirm, and I do so on the basis of how the Apostle Paul interprets the Old Testament. He does not view the Old Testament as an end in itself, it was never given as an end in itself. It was given as a shadow to prepare for Christ. Now he looks back at the Old Testament. And he interprets all of that stuff going back on in there, especially as it pertains to the nation of Israel. He does so now clearly through a lens. And the lens is the Lord Jesus Christ. So important for us to be clear on that. How to approach the Bible. So important for us to be clear on that so that we can get inside Paul's head. And understand why he quotes 12 times from verse 4 to verse 21. And why in particular he turns to places like the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, Joel. Well, doesn't that all have to do with Israel? What's Paul's point? No, it does not. We need to understand it in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look through Christ, the revelation of Christ, and that's how we now get into the old and understand it. And so with that clearly in view, we get how Paul is thinking, how Paul is approaching this. What is he doing in verses 4 through 13? Now this builds. It builds on what we considered last Sunday. Last Sunday, I gave you four facts. Four facts which emerge more or less from chapter 9 verse 30 through to chapter 10 verse 3. Here they are. I've written them out in your church bulletin right there in the sermon notes. You have them. No excuses. Here I'm going to state them. And we need to be clear on this. This is the starting point then for picking up in verse 4 and understanding what Paul is transitioning into now. Here is fact number one. The Jews. Remember he's trying to explain Israel's unbelief. Here's fact number one. The Jews possess zeal without knowledge. He says that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. The Jews are a a very enthusiastic bunch. They're a very religious bunch, but it is ignorance. It is complete blindness. It is a zeal. It is an energy. It is an enthusiasm void of knowledge. That is fact number one. Fact number two is this. The Jews are ignorant of what God really wants. He makes that clear back in chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. What do the Jews think? How do they perceive things? How do they view the way of salvation? Simply as follows. They think the law is something they must do and can do. That's what they think. They think the law is something they must do and can do. They think they're actually saved on the basis of their works. And so they have misunderstood what God wants. They think God wants them to obey the law as a means of salvation. They're ignorant, this is the third fact, they're ignorant of what man really needs. This brings us back into the 10th chapter, verse 3, also verse 4. They're ignorant of what man really needs. They are determined to establish their own righteousness. What they do not understand is that they need a righteousness outside of themselves. They actually need someone else's righteousness. They are unable to fulfill the law, they are unable to obey God. They are unable to work for salvation. They are unable to establish their righteousness, their own right standing in the sight of God. What they need is someone else's righteousness. They need God's righteousness. And this is the fourth fact. Owing to their ignorance, the Jews stumble over Christ. And so we have that wonderful prophecy back at the end of chapter 9. The Lord Jesus is compared to a rock, and so there you have it, this great rock, and there is this terrible flood, this torrent, this torrential downpour, God's judgment. Are you clear on the imagery? You've got this flood, the waters of God's judgment, and you have a rock. You have two choices. Choice number one is this, get on the rock. That's choice number one accept god's righteousness in the lord jesus christ as your only legal standing before god believe in the lord jesus rest in the lord jesus turn your life over to the lord jesus and stand upon that rock and standing upon that rock the flood waters of god's judgment cannot will not touch you second choice is this ignore the rock try to swim against the flood waters of god's judgment Try to establish your own righteousness. And you know that rock? Rather than a refuge, you know what it becomes? The thing upon which you will be destroyed, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Rather than being a rock of refuge, he will be a rock of destruction. And the floodwaters of God's judgment will thrash you against him. That is the choice. Two ways set before man. Try to earn it yourself. Try to establish your own righteousness. Try to face God's wrath, God's judgment on the basis of how good you think you are. And you will stumble over the stumbling stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will actually become a rock of offense. And you will be judged by him. Or understand your sinfulness. Understand your inability to keep the law. Recognize your complete inability to establish your own legal standing in God's sight. And please, I pray, get on the rock. Stand upon it. Rest upon it. Grab it and cling to it and hold on to it for all you are worth. And that rock will not be moved when the floodwaters of God's righteous indignation is poured out upon humanity. Those are the four things. Facts concerning Israel's unbelief. Now, beginning in verse 4, really in verse 5, what is Paul doing? He's building on that. I think he's basically answering this question Look, can we blame the Jews? C- can we blame them for thinking God wanted them to obey the laws and means of salvation? Can we blame them for thinking? That their salvation was ultimately contingent on their performance under the law. Can we blame them for thinking that God actually required them, commanded them, demanded of them that they establish their own righteousness on the basis of the law? Can we blame them? Can we blame them? That's how most evangelicals actually think the Jews were saved in the Old Testament. Forget the Jews. So many evangelicals are confused about this. Well, that's how they were saved in the Old Testament, doing their best under the law. No, they were not No one has ever been saved doing their best under the law. Justification has only ever been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Jews, can we blame them because they were given that law? Their God appeared to them at Sinai. Boy, the whole place shook and trembled and there was this earthquake and there was lightning and trumpet blasts and a smoke. And down came Moses, his face all aglow and this law given to them and and this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and do this or you shall die. Can we blame them for assuming? Can we blame them for concluding? Well, I guess we're on our own. It's up to us to do our best. It's up to us to try to obey the law in order to establish our righteousness paul's answer to that question is this you betcha you, you bet you can blame them they completely misunderstood completely misunderstood how does paul now go about proving this two quotes you'll see it in the sermon notes quote number 1 quote number 2 two conclusions conclusion number 1 Conclusion number two. So we begin with the first quote. It's simple enough. Verse five. It's out of Leviticus chapter 18, verse five. For Moses, so let's go to the big guy himself, Moses. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And so there is a way to be saved by keeping the law, hypothetically speaking. That if you were able to obey the law perfectly, you will be saved. But in giving that law and putting that before the nation of Israel, God was not revealing what they could do. He was revealing the requirement, but not to show them what they could do but to actually make clear to them that they could never do it if given a billion years to do so. It is completely hypothetical. Yes, I suppose there is a hypothetical way of being saved. Yes, your works, a righteousness based on the law, if you are able to obey them perfectly, right? Then as he transitions into verse 6, we have a second quotation. As a matter of fact, there are three citations, They're all out of the book of Deuteronomy, out of the law. Again, from the pen of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 30. What is Paul doing here? He's making a contrast. Look at the opening statement back in verse five. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Yeah, this idea that you can obey the commandments and you will live by them. You'll be all right, but nobody can do that. Now, here's what I want you to understand from the book of Deuteronomy. There is a righteousness based on faith. A righteousness based on faith. And then he makes these three citations from the book of Deuteronomy to prove it. What's he trying to do by proving it? First of all, he wants to show the Jews that they misunderstood Moses. They misunderstood Moses when they concluded that the law was given to them as a means of salvation. A way by which they could work, they could perform, and establish their own righteousness. When they thought like that, they were wrong. And so that is what he is proving now, going back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is complex. It doesn't have to be, but it's complex because we're not that familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. Let's be honest. We didn't spend much time in it in our devotions this past week, did we? Deuteronomy chapter 30. What's going on? Now get this. The book was written when? Before the nation entered into the promised land. It was written before the nation even entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 30, what does Moses prophesy? Word of the Lord. You're going to blow it. He says it right there in Deuteronomy 30. When the Lord curses you, And when the Lord disperses you among the nations, it's going to happen. Right there in Deuteronomy 30, before they're even in the land, it's over. We all know what's going to happen here. God is going to curse you. God is going to disperse you among the nations in judgment. Moses establishes three things. First, God tells them, he makes it clear in Deuteronomy 30, you are a rebellious people. He says it right there in Deuteronomy 30. He makes it very clear in that same context that they dare not rely on their own righteousness. He says it there in Deuteronomy 30. And he makes it clear, God tells them that he himself, if they're going to be saved, he himself must circumcise their hearts. What does God make clear to the nation of Israel even before they enter the promised land? This law I've given you, You cannot keep it. This law I've given you, you cannot obey it. You are an obstinate and rebellious people. Judgment will come. Your only hope is if I circumcise your hearts. What was Moses teaching the people even back there in Deuteronomy 30? There is a righteousness based on faith. The Jews should have understood that the Jews should have understood again that the law was not a means of salvation the law was given them to show them their sin acknowledging their sin they should have turned to God trusted in God rested in God for that righteousness which they so desperately needed. To prove that, Paul quotes in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, this is the citation out of Deuteronomy 30, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Verse 7, do not say in your heart who will descend into the abyss. And so again, it's back in Deuteronomy 30, before they even enter the land. Moses makes it clear. You are not to strive for your own salvation. You are not to think you possess the ability to establish your own righteousness. You don't. You are completely dependent upon God. Do not think to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. Do not think to yourself, you will descend to the lowest abyss. Do not think that this law that is put before you is something that you can do. You do not possess that ability. And then he makes it even clearer, does he not, as he moves on to verse 8. But what does it say? What does the word of faith say? Back then, days of Moses, the word is near you. Is a citation from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. You are to believe in God. You are to look away from your own works. You are to look away from your own righteousness. You are not to develop this mindset legally that this is something you can attain and you can perform. No, you are to recognize that this is well beyond your moral ability. And you are to confess with your mouth. You are to believe in your heart in that righteousness that God himself will give. Do you understand Paul's argument here? Do you understand? Do you see? I know it's tedious. It is tedious. But do you see why he takes us into the depths of the Old Testament? It's for this very simple reason. He's trying to prove this basic premise. Can the Jews be blamed for thinking they could obey the law? Yes, because the gospel was preached to them back in the days of Moses. The gospel was preached to them, proclaimed to them back in the days of Moses. That salvation is by faith alone. And no one establishes their own legal standing before God on the basis of their performance, but is completely dependent upon God's grace to grant that legal standing to them. That's the first thing Paul is doing. The second thing Paul is doing, he is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What can we expect? He's inspired by the Spirit of God, but he's brilliant. Did you notice? After each of those three quotations, there is something in parentheses. And each of those parenthetical remarks begins with the expression, that is. You see it there, the end of verse 6, in parentheses, that is. End of verse 7, parentheses, that is. End of verse 8, in parentheses, that is. What's he doing here? You see, not only is he showing the Jews that they've misunderstood Moses, he's now showing the Jews that Moses was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? In such an obscure passage like Deuteronomy 30, all law and terror, terror. Isn't it amazing that even in the midst of that, Moses himself was speaking of the coming Messiah. So go back through the three quotations and see how Paul this is the This ties back to what I was saying in the opening. See how Paul interprets the Old Testament. See how Paul does with the Old Testament scriptures. And see how he views them and interprets them now through this lens called the Lord Jesus. And so the first citation, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Now what does that mean? That is to bring Christ down. That's interesting. Verse seven, or who will descend into the abyss? What does that mean? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse eight, but what does it say? What does the righteousness based on faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. We proclaim. Three key words. The first citation can be summed up in the word incarnation. The second citation can be summed up in the word resurrection. And the third citation can be summed up in the word proclamation. That that prophecy given by Moses now finds with the coming of the Lord Jesus its fulfillment in him. We are not to say, I will ascend into heaven. What, you think you can make Christ incarnate again? I am not to say, well, I can descend into the abyss. What, you think you can raise Christ from the dead? You think what God requires of you is something you can actually perform? You think, let me get this, you actually think... You can do something greater than the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything in between. Is that what you think? No, do not say to yourself, who will ascend into heaven? Do not say to yourself, who will descend into the abyss? Understand this, the Lord Jesus Christ has already ascended, having descended by virtue of his incarnation. Understand this, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ marks God's acceptance of Christ's work on your behalf. Now proclamation, understand this, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart, says Paul. That is what we've been talking about, the word of faith that we proclaim. So can we blame the Jews? Yes, we can blame the Jews. We can blame them for two reasons. One, they misunderstood Moses in the first place, way back in Deuteronomy 30. Secondly, now that Christ has come, they failed to understand their own scriptures. You see, they still think the Old Testament is an end in itself. And their failure to understand or interpret the old through Christ's incarnation, Christ's resurrection, Christ's work, and understand exactly what God was saying and preparing for when His... His Son came into this world. Are they to blame? Yes, they are to blame. Because it was a willful ignorance. They willfully blinded their eyes and turned their hearts away from the Lord. They were convinced. Why? Because they misdiagnosed their problem. They actually thought they possessed all that was necessary to earn their salvation. A righteousness based on the law. That's not what Moses preached. Moses preached a righteousness based on faith and understand this. We now see its fulfillment before our very eyes. The conclusion is what? Conclusion number one, verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That is the gospel. That has always been the gospel. And that will always be the gospel. That we dare not put our righteousness where God's righteousness alone belongs. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But that we confess with our mouths. We believe in our hearts what? That God raised him from the dead. Why does he focus on the resurrection? Because if we get that, we get everything else. We understand who the Lord Jesus is, we understand what the Lord Jesus has done, and we believe with the whole heart. No longer trusting in ourselves, a righteousness based on the law, on works but trusting with our whole hearts upon Christ, a righteousness based on faith. Conclusion number two, basically repeating, a little more expansive, conclusion number one. Here's the second, verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, here's another citation out of the book of Joel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I've thought a lot through this text, and I have given a lot of thought to how one might respond to this text. Why should I care? Why should I care how the Jews responded to the gospel nearly 2,000 years ago? Why should I care? Why, Why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about how the... These people who I don't know, these people I'm so far removed from 2,000 years ago, why are we talking about how they responded to the gospel? Why aren't we talking about more important things? I came here hoping to hear something relevant. I came here hoping to see hear something relevant for me, pertinent to me. My mind has been going down that road a lot this week. And the more I have immersed myself in, yes, a a complex text at times, the more convinced I have become that this is a message, this is a text, and in particular, the example that Paul displays before us of Israel's unbelief from 2,000 years ago is a message of extreme relevance for us today. Matter of fact, I would affirm, I would submit to you, it is of extreme relevance and importance for the christian self the christian self it is extreme importance and relevance for the over-churched and the individual who thinks they know everything but somehow christ has escaped them you see it gives us this perspective you see in israel i see myself i hope you see yourself in israel And the fact that we have this tendency, just like the Jews of old, we have this mindset. That could be us. We have this mindset that we just will not let go of, that somehow God's acceptance of me in the final analysis will be based on something in me that sets me apart, marks me as different from everyone else. That still in my belly there lingers. This notion that just will not go away. That God's acceptance of me is based on me. And it arises from the fact that we have completely misdiagnosed the severity of our problem and the sin that plagues us. And what exactly is our standing before a holy God? And rather than clinging to the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, many of us pay simple lip service to the gospel live as we please. And in actual fact, without realizing it, are swimming against the tide of the flood waters of God's judgment. So let me make this perfectly clear. That has been what I have striven for this past week as I've thought in terms of application. Let me make this perfectly clear by affirming five truths of why this matters and why I pray these, these, these truths and what Paul is doing here as he delves into the Old Testament. Why, why this must be crystal clear in our mind's eye and in our hearts. Here's the first truth. I want you to grasp this. God has done everything in Jesus Christ. That comes out of verses 6 and 7. That's all he's saying there. You want to boil it down to a simple phrase? There it is. God has done Everything. In Jesus Christ. Hear the words of the Lord to us. On judgment day as Christians. I accept you. I forgive you. I have declared you righteous in my sight. And I have done so on the basis of my son's righteousness. Only his righteousness justifies in my court. That is it. The sun gets all the glory, folks. If you want some glory, get over it. The sun gets all the glory. The only reason we'll be standing there is because God has done everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the end of the law. Look at that statement in verse 4. He is the end, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He has fulfilled its duty, what God demands of you because you can never do it, and he has fulfilled its penalty when he bore our sin upon Calvary's cross. Oh, crystal clear, I pray. Here's the second truth. God does not, God does not require anything monumental from us. Who will ascend into heaven? Who will descend into the abyss? God does not require anything monumental from us. The gospel. The gospel is not about what we can or cannot do. But about what God has done for us. He requires nothing monumental from us. Third truth is this. Comes out obviously verses 8 through 10. God commands us to believe in Christ. Commands us to believe in Christ. What does it mean to believe in Christ? We entrust our whole self. That's the heart. Don't think of that heart beating in your chest. Don't even think of the heart as we often equate it with emotions today. In a biblical mindset, and biblical categories, the heart is simply the whole self. Everything about you. yourself, your entire being. We entrust our whole self to God. We transfer our trust from ourselves to God. I put John Owen's little quote there in the sermon notes. It's beautiful. Here it is. Faith receives Jesus. Looks to Jesus, comes to Jesus, flees to Jesus, leans upon Jesus, trusts in Jesus, holds to Jesus, and rests upon Jesus. In terms of the context of this passage, faith gets on the rock, doesn't it? Please understand this. It doesn't do you any good knowing the rock is there. That's the Christian self. Millions know the rock is there. Millions actually even assent to the fact that the rock is there, the Lord Jesus, and died on the cross for sinners. That won't save you either. Simply knowing it is not going to do you an ounce of good. Simply assenting, well, I agree with that. That's not going to do you any good, friend, either. What must you do? You need to get on the rock. You need to trust in the rock, rest in the rock, embrace the rock with your whole self. That is what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Oh, God commands us to believe in Christ. Fourth truth is this. God hears everyone who calls on him. That's beautiful. Look at verse 12 again. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. I think we can sum that up as follows. Whatever your background, right now, whatever your background, whatever yesterday was like, whatever your past year has been like, whatever your past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years have been like, whatever rows you've been down, whatever mud you have waddled in, whatever mire you have involved yourself in, Whatever sins you have committed or things you have omitted that you should have done. Whatever your background, understand this. If you call upon the Lord, he will be merciful. All who call on him, whoever, says the Lord Jesus, whoever comes to me, I will never what? I will never cast out. He receives all who come to him. Oh, understand that, please. God hears everyone who calls on him. And the fifth truth is this. God bestows his riches on all who call on him. That's straight out of verse 12. Bestowing, the last part of the verse, bestowing his riches, his wealth, on all who call on him. What kind of wealth is that? He pays all my debts. He satisfies all my wants. He meets all my longings. He carries all my burdens. He sanctifies all my afflictions. He subdues all my fears. He defeats all my enemies. He guarantees my inheritance. He bestows. He pours out, he lavishes the riches of his grace, his mercy upon all who call on him. That is the gospel. That is the gospel Moses preached in, yes, the forms and patterns of his day. That is the gospel the Lord Jesus preached. That is the gospel the apostle Paul preached. That is the gospel we preach. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here is truth. Why should I care about this? Here is truth to make you wise. Here is light to guide your way. Here is hope to calm your fear. Here is joy to ease your sorrow. Here is water to quench your thirst. Here is food to satisfy your hunger. As we'll sing in just a few moments, O fount of love divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side where sinners trade their filthy rags for His righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain, now rushing o'er us like a flood. There the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. I'll say it again. And I pray for believers that you will hear this. Take it to heart and be encouraged in heart. For unbelievers here, I pray God will give you eyes to see and a heart to receive. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God indeed raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus. We praise you that we can turn away from ourselves. We can look away from all our efforts, feeble efforts. We look away from all our strivings, vain strivings. We can look away from our own perceived, skewed perspective, our righteousness, our obedience. And we can rest in that rock whom you have provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as Christians, our faith might be renewed and invigorated this day and you would beckon us to look heavenward, homeward to Christ our Savior. And for unbelievers in our midst, we pray that you'd be merciful. Show them their sin. Show them the glories of Christ's cross. And Show them your abundant mercy that will flow, your riches that you will bestow upon all who call upon your name. It is in the precious and matchless name of Christ we ask it. Amen.